This morning we're going to take a bit of a um, break from First Kings. As Michael said, he and I were at our denomination's General Assembly this week in Memphis. It was a it was a sweet week as we gathered together and we celebrated our denomination's 50th anniversary. Perhaps because of that celebration, uh, I have been a bit nostalgic. I've <laughs> been thinking about the state of the church. I've been thinking about the state of my own heart. And it's taken me back a bit to when I was first processing this call to, to plan a church. I was a seminary student at Reformed Seminary in Charlotte, and, and at the time our president was Dr. Mike Milton. I went to talk to him about church planting. He had planted two churches himself. And one of the things you need to know about Dr. Milton is he was a very passionate man. He's the only person I know who ever pulled a muscle while preaching. So when he spoke, he got animated. He told me, when we plant churches, we are planting a golden lampstand that will shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ until he returns. It's a reminder to me that this church extends beyond me, extends beyond you, and our calling in the church is to shine the light of Jesus. But here's the thing about that lampstand, for it to shine and to keep shining, it's got to burn. That's true of our denomination, Presbyterian Church in America. It's true of Christ Church here in Trustville, Alabama. It's true of me and my heart, and it's true of you. I'm going to look at Revelation chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7, and I'll explain more about why we are looking here. But this is Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus. Kids, you should listen for something. As I read this passage, and as we preach about it. We're going to talk about in this passage uh, how a church is like a lamp. Okay, so I want you to, you to listen for how is a church like a lamp. And what is the church meant to shine? Listen for that and talk to your parents about it over lunch today. Okay? As we prepare to go to this text, would you bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, this is your letter. This is your letter to us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, heart to receive. Not merely these words, but you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. The angel of the church in Ephesus writes, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. 
that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Revelation 2 and 3 contain a series of letters that Jesus writes to the churches in that time, somewhere the latter part of the first century. He's writing to specific churches about specific issues at a specific time in redemptive history, and yet the seven churches represent the fullness of the one universal church. So this, these letters speak to the needs of the church, and in totality they speak to all churches. And yet this particular letter, I believe, speaks to our denomination and to our church uniquely. So we listen to it. The letter, we just said, and letters have a form to them. This letter is no different. The opening verse is the introduction to this letter, and yet that introduction is not mere formality. There is great meaning and content in this first verse. In the first verse that I read you, we spoke of the seven stars that Jesus holds in his right hand. If you look back to Revelation chapter 1, it explains that those seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And Jesus is saying here in verse 1 that he, the one who speaks, is the one who holds the angels. A statement of power. And it is a statement of of care. Jesus is saying that he is the one who holds and upholds the church as he holds and upholds the angels that care for the church. But this verse speaks to more power. It speaks of the lampstand. Lampstand, back to uh, Revelation chapter 1, refers to the church. And Jesus walks among the lampstands. Jesus walks among the churches. It's, he is telling us that he is intimately involved in the life of the church. Jesus knows his bride. He's engaged in our lives and in our life collectively. Verse 1 is telling us that the one who upholds is the one who knows, and he is the one who speaks. Matt, there is an echo of the prophetic formula that we find throughout Scripture of thus saith the Lord. But here in Revelation 2, 1, is not thus saith the Lord. It's the words of Him. He opens the letter this way. He's telling us in this prophetic formula to listen up. We're going to hear in this letter the 
the call to remember our first love. But with this prophetic formula, it's a reminder that this, this is not some sweet little encouragement. It's a command. It's a command to the churches, and it's a command to us. And yet, how encouraging is it that, that Jesus begins this letter with a word of, of affirmation? Stay the course. Verses 2 and 3 contain that, that affirmation. And Jesus is affirming the church in Ephesus. He's affirming, I believe, in many respects, our denomination and Christ's church. He's affirming our, our, our fight for doctrinal faithfulness, doctrinal integrity, integrity. He's affirming our perseverance in that fight. We need encouragement, do we not? We get it here from Jesus. There's the carrot and the stick, and Jesus is offering the carrot of encouragement, encouraging us in the church, but with that encouragement, there is not merely affirmation. There's encouragement to continue, to stay the course. Your elders and deacons are committed to this work, committed to this course in many respects. They have submitted to it themselves. They've undergone a, a rigorous process of examination, of, of testing to continue that work in the church. They've been tasked by God to continue the work of preserving the, the doctrinal integrity of the church, and it's one of the ways in which they care for you. It is a beautiful, glorious work, and yet it is work. It's not just the pastors, the elders, the deacons who need to stay the course in this fight for doctrinal integrity. It's all of us our families, in our work, what we believe about God matters. What we believe about His holiness, His, His sovereignty, His grace, it matters. It matters as we shape the hearts of our children. It matters as we consider questions of calling, of vocation. It, it matters what we believe about God and he is calling us here to remember that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and that our King Jesus reigns. Jesus is affirming us in this work and calling us to continue to stay course. This doctrine protects us. It protects us from the creep of secular culture, but it also frees us from fear and cowering back from the culture that is around us so that we might engage the culture for the glory of Christ. Whether our work is shepherding the flock, whether our work is evangelistically engaging the community around us, or whether that work is leading our families, Jesus is affirming us and calling us to, per to persevere. Now, that call to perseverance applies to every one of us here, but I also want to speak for just a moment to the elders and deacons among us. 
Jesus is calling us to persevere in doctrinal faithfulness, and that requires proclamation, that requires speaking. It requires speaking the truth of Scripture, but it also involves testing. Shepherds have to fight the wolves. And at times the battle gets bloody, but it's the battle that we're called to fight, and we're called to fight it with patient, loving endurance. Ministry, regardless of who we are, is not a short-term project. It's a long-term engagement. And Jesus is telling the church in Ephesus that they are fighting well. Their theology is good. Same is true and can be said of the Presbyterian Church in America. I believe the same can be said of Christ's Church, PCA. Your theology is good. We're known for it. This is our letter. Jesus encourages us to stay the course, but with that encouragement, there's also an admonition. You see, it's not merely stay the course. It's also correct the course. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you have, that you had at first. Let me offer a confession. Uh, sometimes I'm tempted to, um, to translate the Bible into my own vocabulary, and I can be tempted to take some liberties when I translate the Bible into my own vocabulary. The unauthorized James translation of verse 4 is that you lost your first love. You see, when I say that I lost my first love, I'm giving myself some undue credit. Because to lose my first love is to be passive in that loss. The first love just vanished. It went away. But the text doesn't say you lost your first love. Did you hear something different? The text says you abandoned the love that you had at first. To abandon that first love is to not be passive and love just vanishing. It's to be very active. To actively walk away from that first love. We do it in subtle ways. It happens over an extended period of time, but it happens when we turn our attention and our affection elsewhere. The lesser love. So what is this love that Jesus is saying we have abandoned? Different Bible teachers have different views on that love. Some Bible teachers think that this is referring to an early love that the people had for Jesus. Think in terms of the passion of newfound love. They would say that this is a, a walking away from that early Motion. Other Bible teachers would say that it refers to the love that we are to have for one another. Maybe that is the love that we have for one another within the body of Christ. Maybe it is the love that we are to have for the lost, the hurting, those out there. I read this text and I see that it simply speaks of love without an object. Let me talk about what I mean by that. Just as the love you had at first, but if love 
is to be true, it must be rooted in a love of Christ. Again, that love is to be true, it must work itself outwardly. And when we lose that orientation of a love rooted in Christ that works itself outwardly, we tend to turn inwardly. Either inwardly to self or inwardly into our small circle of PLUs, people like us. I think this question ultimately of what love this is, is not a question of either or. It's not a question of either a love for Jesus or a love for others. It's a question of both and. Jesus is speaking of a love for him, a love rooted in him that works itself outward. It is both and. And so we go back then to the lampstand. The lamp is to shine outwardly. But the lamp that shines outwardly must burn inwardly. Jesus tells us what is wrong. The lamp is growing dim. Then he tells us what to do. Remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Now, remember is a funny word. It can have different meanings. It can be a question. Do you remember? Or it can be a command. Remember. Remember is a command that calls us to put our memory into action, to do what we did previously. Remember in verse 5 is a command. It's actually the first of three found in this text. But before we can obey the command, we have to ask the question, do we remember? Um, there is a, another debate that rages, and it's the debate over what is the best Christmas movie. Everybody has their opinion. I cast my vote for Elf. The one that we watch every Christmas season. In Elf, Buddy the Elf, he goes on a date with Jovi. And fresh off of this date, he comes into the conference room with his father leaping and says, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. You remember that love? You remember feeling that love and not caring who knows about it? Have you ever experienced that love? So far in the past that it's a mere distant memory. Sometimes we think in terms of marriage and as the years go by, the the passion of that early love seems to fade into a flicker, and we wonder, how do we recapture that, that love? But the danger in that is to think merely in terms of the emotion, the passion we had in the early days of our romance. But what is more appropriate is to remember the pursuit. The pursuit of getting to know and pursue our loved one and it was that pursuit that action that that fueled the passion that's marriage 
talking about our relationship with Jesus. Do you remember? Let me just say as I ask that question that I'm not making an assumption. I'm not assuming that that everyone here is is a believer in Christ. And I'm not assuming that everyone here has that faint memory of a time when you lived with a passionate devotion for Jesus. And yet I am preaching a text. And I'm preaching a letter that Jesus wrote to a church. And so therefore by definition it is written to believers. And it's calling believers to to return to that love. And yet there is application for everyone here, believer or not, to hear and remember or to hear for the first time. So do you remember when love for Jesus was new? Or are you here longing for that love? If you remember... A time when that love was new, you probably remember some awkward, clunky days, much like those, those, those adolescent uh, dating uh, days. We can, we can be clunky in our love and pursuit of Jesus. In those days of early love, we likely did not have the clear grasp of doctrine that we might have now, but those days were sweet. And they were good you remember or have you ever experienced a time when you could not wait to wake up in the morning that you might spend time with Jesus do you remember what that time with him and his word stirred in you was that a time when loving others was just the most natural outworking of that love relationship with Jesus how do we recapture it you got to remember Not remember the emotion, but remember the person of Jesus and the truths about Him that first caused our heart to burst with love. Again, I make no assumptions, but I ask you if you remember, and if you have not remembered, do you long for love that is marked by grace? Do you remember the first time you heard of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that your love, your relationship with Him was not dependent upon you, but He pursued you by His grace alone. Do you remember the first time when you read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved by faith, and this is not your own doing, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You remember hearing these truths of the Scripture that said Jesus sought you in the midst of your own sin, that He is the God of grace. Do you remember or have you ever heard of God's sovereign power? Do you remember or have you ever read John chapter 6 and Ephesians chapter 1 when you heard that God loved you from before the foundation of the world? And that He is sovereignly working out His plan in all of human history and in your hearts that grace is sovereign grace and that our Lord Jesus Christ is a God of power. Have you heard, do you remember 
that God's grace did not merely forgive you of your sins, but it granted you a righteousness of Christ, and that it meant that He has adopted you into His family. Then the fullness of time, He was born of a woman under the law so that He might redeem those who are under the law, that in Him we might have adoption. That He loves us and calls us into His family. Do you remember hearing these truths for the first time, or have you heard them? You remember what they stirred in you. The text is calling us to remember. To go back when love was new, when these truths were bursting our hearts. Jesus is asking us this question and then he is giving us the command. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember from where you have fallen. Then repent. Remember is the first command, repent, is the second. To repent is to recognize, to confess, and to turn. I offer a personal story of what this has looked like in my own life, how I have intentionally walked away from my first love. Walking away from a love focused on Jesus to, to a need to align myself with certain people was a young seminary student. I wasn't all that young, to be honest with you, but I was a seminary student, a pastoral intern, and I fell into what can only be called a form of reformed tribalism, that is aligning myself with, with certain teachers and aligning myself against certain other teachers and being more focused on who I was aligned with than who I was following. And it impacted my love in ways that I didn't recognize until later. In seminary, I read a book on evangelism. It was a book of essays. And in that book was an essay by a particular pastor whom I'd never heard of. His name was Frank Barker. If you don't know him, he planted Briarwood Presbyterian Church, and he was a man deeply in love with Jesus. And I read this essay, and I saw all the things that he was doing, and then my educated arrogance, I thought to myself, he's just trying to build a big church. I know better than him. And then in the providence of God, he called me to Trustville, Alabama. Plant a church out of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. And I got to know Frank in his latter days. Got to see his love for Jesus. And how that love for Jesus worked itself out a man who was deeply passionate for sharing that love with anyone whom he could come into contact with. And many of you here today came to faith through his ministry, public and private. I lost that love thinking I knew better because I was aligning myself with others and abandoning love for Jesus. I can weep thinking about it now, but Frank was in love with Jesus. And because Jesus was the focus, he was humble, and he fought for the hearts of the lost. Now, now that was my struggle and how the Lord brought me back and continues to convict me to bring me back. What is it for you? 
What is it that causes you to abandon the love that you had at first or to deaden your hearts against the reality of that love? Is it aligning yourself with certain celebrity pastors and against other celebrity pastors? Do you find yourself focused more on who you associate with than the God who has saved you? Or is it simply the kudzu creep of culture that slowly deadens our hearts to the beauty of Jesus? Whatever it is, we don't merely lose our love. We abandon it for lesser things. And so let us repent. Let us do the third command. Let us do the works we did at first. Those works in context must be the works of love. The works of love that flow out of a heart that burns with love for Jesus. Was there a time in your life when you told others about Jesus simply because you loved Him and them? Likely was and is messy. Again, like that teenage boy trying to ask out the girl. But here's the truth. The Holy Spirit was working then and the Holy Spirit is working now. Please don't hear what I'm not saying and please don't hear what Jesus is not saying. Not meaning to imply that our growing grasp of doctrinal truth caused this abandonment of our first love. And to keep us from thinking so, Jesus continues to affirm the church in verse 6. He says, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know what those works are. But in some sense, they were a group who capitulated the culture. And so Jesus reminds them to fight the right fight. But to do so in love, it is both. Reformation and revival. It is Jesus' encouragement and his admonition to the church and to us as individuals, but it all comes with a promise. So let us hear and understand and receive that promise in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to us as individuals. The one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's a beautiful promise, a promise of being with Jesus, and it goes to the conquerors, but who are the conquerors? We live in a community that loves to back a winner. We love winners. And we're tempted to define the conqueror as the winner. You know this in your own heart. Who is the football team that you associate with? Maybe it's the Huskies, maybe it is pick the college of your choice. But that desire to follow a winner and to define the conqueror of a winner is so baked into our culture that the churches in our community have owned it themselves and proclaim the gospel of winning. And I throw no rocks at any church because that rock would have to be thrown here as well. But we into our culture and we've lost the God of grace. Friends, the conquer does not mean to win. Conquer means to cling. To cling to Christ knowing that He is the one who clings to us. It's to cling to Him in the midst of the struggle. It's to cling to Him in the midst of seeming success. 
It is to cling to Him knowing that even if our love fades, His never will. It is to preserve or persevere to the end knowing that He is the one who has preserved us all along. And to those who claim, we have this promise to eat of that tree of the fruit of life. His paradise. And that's, my friends, the promise that will sustain us. Lamps are meant to shine. And they're meant to shine brightly. The light the gospel until Jesus returns in glory. Look for the lamp to shine. Got to burn. Let us, as a church and as individuals, be a lampstand that burns the love of Jesus till he returns. Let us burn ourselves so that we might shine brightly for all the world to see. Amen? Lord Jesus, you are the one who upholds us. You are the one who walks among us. You are the one who knows us. You are the one who has saved us, calls us your own. So I pray that we would rest in and cling to that truth, now and always. In your name we pray.